0: and the whole purpose of having Dhamma or Buddhist teachings is to deal with the problems of life and so we've got what people think is a problem. A lot of these things aren't really problems, we make them problems in our mind because our nature of our mind is to exaggerate, to make big things out of small things. And I told this story just a few days ago, actually it was over in New Zealand, about once when I was meditating in the jungles in Thailand, this was about 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, those tigers, they were monk-eating tigers. (laughs) These days, they don't make tigers like they used to. In those days, they were fierce, they were dangerous, they would stop at nothing. And you'd meditate in these jungles, at night, in the dark, just to test yourself out. So I was never afraid of ghosts, because ghosts are easy to deal with they say boo to you, you say boo to them back. Louder. <laughs> <laughs> and they run away. But tigers, I mean, they're really dangerous. So this was very difficult time. So you can imagine, imagine that was you. Just alone. With no protection at all. Sitting there under the trees. And I was sitting one evening. Under the trees nice and peaceful. But, maybe about must be eight or nine o'clock, I heard a sound. Because at night time, especially in the jungle, when you know there are monk-eating tigers around, especially tigers who like western food. (laughs) (laughs) Every sound is really important. So I heard a sound. But I checked it out, you know, because you're very mindful. And, you know, I was a scientist before, so you could pretty much figure out what the sound uh, meant, what type of animal it was. It was only a small animal, so... I forgot about the sound. I just kept on meditating, just watching my breath nice and peacefully. But I could hear the sound coming closer towards me. And as it was coming closer towards me, I checked it out again. You know, just being investigative, mindful, you know, not sort of uh, playing around, but just sit- listening very carefully. I came to the conclusion there wasn't a small animal, there was a medium-sized animal. could have been like, you know, a small civet cat, or, you know, medium sized jungle did not really matter. So I closed my eyes and just carried on watching my breath, nice and peaceful, breathing in, breathing out. I could hear it come even closer. As it came closer, you could hear the twigs break and the leaves beginning to rustle. And you could hear the thud of its legs as it was moving towards me. Small animals don't make thuds like that. That was obviously a big animal. And I was being very careful, checking my perception to make sure it was okay. And I realized that was not a small animal at all. That was a big animal. And worst, it was coming right in my direction. So I thought, no, you know, I'm a monk. I should not be scared. That didn't help, so I opened my eyes. (laughs) And then I saw it right in front of me. I really thought it was a big tiger. You know what it was? A small mouse about this (laughs) big. And that really shocked me because what it meant was that I really thought that I was being rational, mindful, being wise. But when this fear, even for the best of people, a small little mouse becomes this huge monk-eating tiger who is about to jump on you and gobble you up. And what that told me was the nature of fear which can make small things into huge things. That's one of the first lessons we should know, just about the nature of our mind. If we're not careful, we can worry ourselves sick about recessions, about sicknesses, about relationships, about anything in life. One of the reasons why I'm a happy monkey, you don't worry about such things. you could do something about it. And is anyone here can actually do anything about the recession? Can anyone do anything about this? Has anyone got a few billion dollars to prime the the uh the market in Singapore? Well if you can't do anything about it, why worry about it? The only <laughs> the only things you should worry about are things you can actually do something about. If there's nothing to do I learned a long time ago, if there's nothing to do, then do nothing. Now that seems to be common sense. I don't know how many people when there's nothing to do, they just go frantically, panicking, causing problems from themselves and other people, causing themselves mental sickness, grief for their families, simply because they don't know how to sit still and do nothing when there is nothing to do. <laughs> An example of that is one of the stories in opening the door of your heart, which is available at a, sp- <laughs> a special cost in the office downstairs, isn't it? Outside, yes. That can be signed as well. Now, in this story. There's lots of really useful stories. That book has now been translated into 17 languages. The latest one is the Lithuanian. I'm not sure how I'm going to check the accuracy of that one. (laughs) But in this particular story, it's a great story about how to deal with things like recessions or other tragedies and difficulties of life. Because life is like this. Sometimes we get ourselves in situations which look like they're going to be terrible. You may have been losing your job, very high debts, don't know what you're going to do, how you're going to survive. And this is the story for a person like that. And it was a story of my friend, when I was a school teacher, he told me this story, that when he was a British soldier in the Second World War, in Burma. Now, of course, you know know from uh, first-hand experience the very terrible things which happened during that Second World War. Now, if you're a soldier, you're fighting with real bullets, Very easy to get killed and being captured meant a lot of time in one of these terrible camps or having to work so hard and being emaciated. So here he was, this young man, wasn't a professional soldier, just like people in Singapore have to do national service. You have to join up, there was no choice. So there he was, a young man fighting thousands of miles from his home in Japan, in Burma, against the Japanese. And he told me that one day he had just a small group of soldiers with him under a captain and unfortunately they stumbled in the middle of a huge number of Japanese soldiers. They were vastly outnumbered, completely surrounded. And when that news came to him from the scouts, the number of Japanese surrounding them was so many, many, many times more. A small group of British soldiers and they were completely surrounded. He thought, this is it. He's about to die. He told me that he was surprised at his courage. In the face of imminent death he decided to try and fight his way out. Even though the odds were almost impossible. Who knows? Maybe one of them might make it. At least they try. That's what he would think. And anyway, if none of them made it, they would take many of the enemy into death with them. That's a heroic thing which soldiers are supposed to do. That's a manly thing to do. But that's not what the captain said. The captain said, No, we will not try to fight our way out. Instead, the captain said, we'll all sit down and have a cup of tea. It was the British Army after all. (laughs) (laughs) And this young man thought, how can you even think of a cup of tea at war when you're surrounded by the enemy, when you're completely outnumbered and about to die? How can you think of a cup of tea in such times? But... Orders are orders in an army, especially at war. There was no choice. He had to make a cup of tea with his friends, even though he thought it was the most crazy thing he'd ever done in his life. Perhaps that captain had been too long out in the jungle and the heat had got to his brain. But there they were, making a cup of tea, thinking that they were about to die anyway. And in the time it took them to make that tea, the scout came back, Whispered a few words into the captain's ear. The captain got all the soldiers together and told them, The enemy has moved. There's a way out. Put your things together quickly and let's take that way out. And of course, they all survived. No one was wounded. That's why he could tell me that story. He said he owes his life to the wisdom of that captain not just in that one moment at war when they were heavily surrounded with no way out, but in other times of his life. He told me once he had cancer. Doctors said it was terminal. There was no way out. So instead of panicking, he just rested and relaxed. He learnt when there's nothing to do, when you're surrounded by death, by tragedy, by financial ruin, in all directions, and there's no way out, then what you should do is just sit down and have a cup of tea. Coffee, if you like. <laughs> or just have a plate of your favourite noodles. It doesn't matter what you have, but you don't panic and do things which are just going to waste your time, make matters worse, and just panic rather than learning how to wait and rest and enjoy the moment because this is what happens in life. There are many, many moments and the trouble is when we're so worried about what might happen and they are justifiable worries. Instead, we learn how to rest, to wait, enjoy the moment. Right now, you have enough food in your kitchen. So eat it. Right now, you have enough money in your pocket, so spend it. That's what the government says anyway. (laughs) And see what happens tomorrow. Because things always change, and there's one thing which I can guarantee what will happen will be unexpected. Just like the recession, unexpected. All of these economists, all the people who we pay to organize our economy. They should get sacked. (laughs) They got it wrong. Even the weather forecasters are better than these guys and girls. But it's not really their fault because no one can predict the future. That's why we don't need to worry about the future because one thing I can predict, whatever you expect it to be, it will be something different. You know who said that 25 centuries ago? The Buddha. That's for anyone who wants to check this out, that's in the Sapurisa Sutra in the middle-length sayings of Majimanikaya. He said, whatever you think it's going to be, it will be something different. When you really understand that, you don't worry about anything, because you just can't predict anything. I told this story last night, it was my birthday some years ago. Actually, it's my my birthday every year, it's really strange that, but this was many years ago. (laughs) Many years ago, at my birthday, a few people came to um, my monastery down in uh, Australia. And uh, they were giving some presents. I said, I'm going to give you a present, said this uh, Malaysian man. And he said, in the newspapers, when it's your birthday, they do a special horoscope for everybody born that day. And so he said, I looked up your horoscope for people born on August the 7th this year, and I'd like to read it out for you. I said, okay, go on. And he said, the horoscope says, for people born in August the 7th, and this was a few years ago, the next 12 months will be a very good year for romance. <laughs> you see, it was wrong. I'm still a monk. <laughs> So you don't know what's going to happen. All these horoscopes and fortune telling, you don't know what's going to happen. Now the trouble is, all the problem with recession, it's not the problem what's happening right now, today. It's always the fear of what might happen next week, next year, or in two years' time. And It's that fear, that worry about the future, which is what we mean by the gloom. Right now, you're healthy, most of you anyway, at least you're alive. <laughs> you're in a nice temple, having a wonderful afternoon with your friends. So what have you got to worry about? Right now, you're having a good time today. Why spoil the happiness of today by worrying about something in the future which might not even happen? And how often do you do that? sometimes people just waste so many wonderful days because they're afraid of things which never actually turn out to happen anyway. So we should be smart with the use of our mind and especially by coming to places like this and get reconditioned because it's a problem with the newspapers and the media and sometimes the politicians as well because they keep talking about recession, 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 cancer, cancer, cancer. cancer sort of divorce, 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 (laughs) death, 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 death. No wonder that people get afraid. So instead of talking about recession, we can just talk about the sense of giving people a bit more free time. So this is the age of more free time for people in Singapore. (laughs) This is the age, the, the period, where we can spend more time with our loved ones because I don't want us in the office. <laughs> this is a time where we can practice these beautiful spiritual things like simplicity. Now I say this not as a joke because if you go through history the times when people have done it tough in the past people look back upon those times with actually nostalgia. I remember my parents they lived in London during the second world war and if any of you read any sort of books about that period, there was um, not just recession, there was um, rationing of food, simply because the food coming into that island nation had to come in in boats, and half of those boats were being sunk by the enemy, and so it was a very tough time for everybody. And even I remember my mother telling me, that in the house she grew up with as her child, she must have been about 14 or 15 at this time, during the Blitz, this is when bombs were being dropped every night for a long time, many months in a row. This is not just like 9-11. This is like 1-11, 2-11, 3 4-11, 5 30, for, 30 for 11 and then December as well. Day after day after day. And one of those bombs dropped in the house next door. Now these are not like houses which are separated, these are houses which have common dividing walls, called terraced houses. The neighbours got bombed to bits, died. My mother got her arm slashed with the glass. That's how close to death they came. And even in such times of, not terrorist, war, war which was happening, and in times of rationing, in times of great difficulty. What happened to people? It wasn't just war and bombs and forced poverty. They had this beautiful sense of togetherness, helping each other, looking after one another and they found these wonderful spiritual qualities which sometimes we forget about when we're chasing the dollar or the pound they became so important and people practiced that friendship, looking after each other, caring and helping each other so much that people look back upon those years with a sense of what wonderful time that was we had. And this sometimes is always the case in life. When any difficulty arises in one part of your life, There's always an increase in some happiness, some richness in another part of your life. It's never always a lose-lose situation. If you focus on a small part of the picture, yes, it's a tragedy. If you focus on the big picture, you also get a huge amount of boost in any difficulty or tragedy which you have in life. Even just somebody said this even just last night. I don't know how many times I hear this. People with cancers, the best thing they that ever happened to them, they keep on telling me. They wouldn't have missed that for the world. And I've never had cancer. But having looked at people who have dealt with them, counseled them, befriended them, taught them through those difficult times, people say, what a wonderful experience that was. Simply because they grew and they learned so much person last night that said, we never realised how much people cared for me and how much they loved me until they had cancer. Now what I'm saying here is any difficulty we have in life, it's not just difficulty. You want to focus on that and be negative about it, then you're going to have gloom. In all times of gloom there's always something positive. When the light goes out and it gets dark, there's always something positive for that. That's the time you can go out romancing. (laughs) In the gloom is a great time to fall in love. (laughs) Whatever it is, you find that there's no such thing as 100% negative experience in life. There's always something positive to it. So you have recession. Yeah, there is some great positive things which are going to come out of this recession. For each one of you. And also for our governments and for our countries. Now we do lessen our greed. and We live like a more like a monk. Not quite like me. But at least you can come a little bit closer. Because you don't need that much to be happy. And sometimes when you don't have the money to spend on things, like maybe with presents for your family, instead you can give something else which is more important to your family. Your time. You find that Money was not that important. But your friends, your family were important. Your health was important. Sometimes we do need these little changes in life so we can actually come back to our senses and learn what's really important in life. And then when we can do that we look at these times of our life recessions and wars and terrorists and we start worrying about these things. If you do something about it, we always want to try and help and do positive things. That's why, you know, I had four hours transit. So why not come and do something here? Something I can do, then I'll do it. If I only had one hour, I couldn't manage it, so I wouldn't have done it. If there's something you can do, do it. If there's nothing you can do, forget about it, relax, have a cup of tea. Even if you're going to lose all your money and about to go to prison. Even go to prison! I've been in Changi Jail. It's not such a bad place. You get three meals a day. You get many more meals than you get in my monastery. (laughs) And I think, actually, I'd have to sleep on the floor in my monastery. I think you did get a a bed, a cot in jail. You get to watch TV in jail. Don't get TV in my monastery. (laughs) So all these things which we're worried about, sometimes it's the worry and fear itself we should be careful of. It's not the recession that's a problem. It's our fear and worry. And if it's not the recession, it'll be something else. I don't know why human beings, sometimes we love to get worried. We're addicted to fear. If it wasn't the recession, then you know, we think about so some terrorist attacking Singapore. If one thing about the terrorist attacking Singapore, we think of, you know, there's some disease, that bird flu is going to come into Singapore. If it wasn't bird flu, It would invent something else to make ourselves afraid. And if there's nothing external to make ourselves afraid, then we just go watching some soccer and get afraid that our team's going to lose and worry ourselves about <laughs> you know, what the results are this weekend. Are we actually manif- and if you don't like the soccer, then you go to these movies. These scary movies. <laughs> and especially like ghost movies. Now I know that Asian people are so terrified of ghosts. So why do they like going to ghost movies for? It's scaring yourself silly. There's one of my <laughs> one of my disciples over in Perth. Her mother was a Thai Chinese, and she'd go to the Chinese movies once a week. That was a, no, we, uh, a weekly uh, event for her. And I've never seen Chinese movies, well I may have seen them but I do not really know they were Chinese movies I not know what they were talking about because I can't understand Chinese but apparently most of the Chinese movies, exactly the same plot usually, boy meets girl and then usually the imperial army gets in the way or something gets in the way and uh, you know, in the end they fall in love but something happens and they never get married. In western movies they do live happily ever after but in Chinese movies, no. <laughs> And so every week she'd come back with red eyes, she'd be crying and crying and crying in the last ten minutes of the movie and all the way home. And this said, what do you do that for? Why do you create so much suffering for yourself and so much sadness? So because I like to cry. <laughs> <laughs> We're crazy human beings, aren't we? And we like to be afraid as well, admit it. We like to worry. And that's one of the b- biggest problems. And because we want to worry, we can worry about anything. Look, this recession business, is not going to go that far down. I mean, it's, it's already just bottoming out, basically. they will come the end of the year, and new year when no one does very much in the West. No, January, February will start coming, coming good again. But we know that's going to happen. It always does. It's always... Anicha, Anicha means up and down and up again Rise and fall, it it is a wave, it goes up and goes down, it doesn't always go down, it's got to go up again We know that's going to happen, we shouldn't worry so much If there's something you can do, great, do it, nothing you can do, just have a nice time Have a nice cup of tea, if you've got money in the pocket, spend it, food, eat it Time with your family, use it together But please, don't worry so much It's the worry which is the killer. I think it's the fear which kills more people of cancer than the tumours do. Fear is the biggest killer of our world. Worry gets you stressed out. You're worrying about something you can't do, you can't change anyway. Why do you create so much turmoil for yourself and make matters so much worse? So after a while we get this incredible sense of wise confidence. Nothing to do, you just don't worry about it, just let it happen. Who cares what happens? And also, i found in life, no matter what happens, you can always do something about it. There's no such thing as a mistake in life. It's not a mistake, it's just you've got a different alternative. Something else you can do. So you married the wrong man. It's not a mistake. You can get a lot of wisdom from marrying someone difficult. (laughs) You can learn patience and tolerance. <laughs> you can always do something with what you've got. This is a interesting story about marriage which I told last night at the talk. This was this fellow, he he had a Christian wife and his this in Australia, and his, his wife was always telling him you know, that she wanted to go to Israel because that's like we Buddhists go pilgrimage in India she wanted to go pilgrimage in India, you know, where Jesus lived and she was nagging him and scolding him and giving him such a hard time she was a very difficult woman to live with in the end he said, okay, even in time of recession we're going to go so they took her to, to, to Israel and while on holiday there, you know, she died she died there. And so after you know, she died in the hospital they had a chaplain there came to see the husband and said look I'm terribly sorry but you've got to be practical especially in such difficult economic times. We've got a choice for you. We can either do the funeral here in Israel it costs about $500. We can do it quite quite cheaply for you. Or if you want to send it back to Australia it costs cost you $5,000. What do you want? And he said I think I think I'd better take her back to Australia and do the funeral there the chapter said, why? It's so expensive. He said, because I heard in Israel some years ago, they buried one person in three days they resurrected again. I can't take the chance with my wife. He told you, why are you all laughing at that? I think we understand that man's predicament. (laughs) But okay, so marriage is sometimes difficult. But we don't really worry too much about it, we just get on and do it, and solve the problems in life. And that's one of the great uh, strengths of a human being. Whatever they face in life, they realise there's no such thing as a mistake, there's no such thing as a wrong decision. We're going to make a decision, we're going to live with it, we're going to make it work, one way or the other. And you can make anything work in life. Look at me. I went into recession 34 years ago. (laughs) I lost all my money, my girlfriend, my house, all my furniture. I lost everything. I made it work. (laughs) Whatever happens in life, you don't have to worry. People who have wisdom, you know that you're not going to get abandoned. Not in our modern age. You do have friends. You do have people who care. And even if you think you're alone, there's temples which look after you. And it's wonderful we have this the great social, social safety net in times of difficulty. And that social safety net is family and friends and temples and community. Which is why the money is important. But the most important part of life is our social networks. That's far more important than money. Because I know, you know, I don't have any money. I don't have bank accounts. And I have no money for my retirement. <laughs> I, d- I don't think you'll let me retire. But am I worried? I go to all these countries overseas. I never get any health cover, health insurance. And sometimes people say, well, what happens if something goes wrong? And I know I've got so many friends so pe- many people who care for me, I don't have to worry if I sort of trip over and break my leg. There will be about ten doctors in the BF who are <laughs> fighting, <laughs> fighting to be the one who treats me. <laughs> That's actually why I had to be very careful. If I ever get sick, as a monk, if you get a well-known mate, you've got to be very careful. If you get sick, never tell anybody. Because I, I just came back from New Zealand and it was very heavy hay fever over in one of the monasteries there. And I caught very heavy hay fever. And so when I came back from New Zealand, I was coughing. It wasn't a, a flu or anything, it was just the remnants of hay fever, an allergy. And so I gave a talk in our centre in Perth. And the next day, you couldn't believe how many flu tablets, how many um, this tablet and that tablet and everything else tablets which people gave me had so many tablets, if I'd have taken them all, I'd have really got sick. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I've got to be very careful not to tell people if I get sick, because I get over-prescribed. But you don't have to worry about things when you know that whatever happens, you've got your friends and your community to look after you. And in fact, if that does happen, you are a wonderful gift for other people. I know sometimes when people get sick, They think, oh, I don't want to be a burden on other people. Please don't think like that. You're not a burden on other people. You're a great gift to other people. You are someone upon whom others can practice their metta, their compassion, their generosity. And you know that if you're going to be kind and be generous and look after and practice compassion, you need somebody to actually practice on. So if you're sick... You can put your hand up, that's me. So it's actually, it's a quite a privilege, you know, if you are in a position of sickness, in a position of difficulty in life, maybe, you know, you may have lost a family member, or maybe you may have a difficulty in finances, it's a privilege that you can give to other people to help and look after you. So never feel ashamed when these difficulties arrive in, arise in life. It is not your fault. I know that sometimes in financial difficulty, especially in places like Singapore, people take personal blame on it, as if that you made some big mistake and therefore that you're incompetent, hopeless, because your business never made it. And that's not the way to think at all, according to Dhamma. No matter what you did, it would probably not work anyway. Now there are certain number of businesses have to fail a certain number of marriages have to fail. It's just, you know the word marriage, every time I do a marriage sermon I tell this, the word marriage comes from a Latin root. And that same Latin root also means to gamble. <laughs> it's true. It comes from the same root, to gamble and to get married, Come from the same thing. Because you can understand what we mean because, you yeah, going out with someone but to actually marry them and live with them, you don't really know what they're like until you've got to live with them you know, sort of 7 days a week you know, 365 days a year then you really know who you're, you're sleeping next to but it doesn't matter sometimes these things don't work out but please don't feel guilty about these things so during times of recession a lot of guilt is the fear of failure and the guilt which may come of it that is also something we should look at and just dismiss as long as you've tried your best in the situation you're in, in the difficult circumstances which are limited, there's only a certain amount you can do. you tried your very best. If you tried your very best, how can there ever be failure? Failure is when you haven't tried your best. When really you have not worked or you've been lazy or you really have uh, been incompetent. It's very, very rare that happens. Most times people really try hard, they work hard, they try and get the best decisions. Sometimes they're not the best decisions, but they only found out afterwards, but at least they tried. So first of all we should try and get rid of that guilt in our life. When we don't feel guilty about things, then a lot of fear disappears as well. Now all guilt is judging ourselves unfairly. And we do, we're the hardest of judges against ourselves and when we don't judge ourselves, or at least we judge ourselves with compassion and kindness and give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, then we won't have guilt and when we don't have guilt, much of fear will disappear. When we don't have fear, then a lot of the worry will go and we'll live a much happier life. Look at me, you come here and give a talk, you don't know what you're going to talk about next. And sometimes people might walk out, or they may think it's a great talk. But I don't really worry about such things. You just give the talk and see what happens. And either way, it's never a failure. Because I often think, if I give a good talk and people love it, that's wonderful. It inspires people and helps people live happier lives. If people hate the talk, and they never come again, that's even better. I can be a hermit. I always wanted to be a hermit. (laughs) (laughs) I live by myself. So I don't worry about outcomes. Whatever happens, I can learn to live with it. And I'm trying my best, and so that's the best you can do in the circumstances. So I'll never feel guilty if I say something wrong or make a mistake, and I often make mistakes. Just a couple of weeks ago, over in Perth, I was doing a wedding ceremony for a Sri Lanka girl married to a nice Australian man. I've known this Sri Lankan girl a long time, but her husband, that's the first time I really met him. And so this other man was uh, sitting, uh, standing next to him, a much older man. And I said, oh, you must be, you know, James's father, the, the groom's father. And he got really upset. He said, no, I am the best man. <laughs> <laughs> He's never going to come to the temple again. <laughs> it does happen. You do make mistakes, but you try your very best. You're well, that other time I remember doing a funeral service. You know, funeral services are very important. You know, you only I've got one ta- one chance to bury somebody. So you've got to get it right. And so at a funeral service, there was I knew the, the children. there was again, there were Sri Lankans. they come to the temple often, I knew their, one of their parents died, and so we are doing the funeral service for them, and I said, "How sad it is that your mother passed away. She was a really great woman, and uh, you know a wonderful mother looked after you and did all these wonderful things for you. And then this old lady stood up at the back and said, "It's not me, it's my husband." <laughs> <laughs> I'm still alive. So that ended all the celebrity of that funeral service. <laughs> so you do make mistakes, but you do feel guilty about it? No way. I think, wow, what a wonderful story that is to make people laugh in the future. <laughs> so when you do make a mistake, it's not really a mistake anyway. You tried your very best, no one's going to be perfect, so you don't feel guilty. When you don't feel guilty, why are you afraid? A lot of time, people are afraid of what other people might say about them. Look at me, what people say about me dressed like this in Australia. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so don't worry what other people say about you. Don't be afraid. And then you don't worry so much. And as far as the future is concerned, you don't know what's going to happen next. You know, before you even get re- a recession, there may be a nuclear attack from Iran directed on Singapore. Who knows what's going to happen next? I remember the story of this one fellow. You know, he was a young man, but he was about, you know, in his early thirties. He still hadn't really found a partner yet. And sometimes even just finding a girlfriend for a few days. You know, sort of, uh, you know, she'd maybe go out with him one day and then dump him the next day. So the poor guy, you know, is really sort of you know, having a hard time trying to find a partner in life. And so, you know, got some counselling. And a counsellor looked at him and said, look, it's obvious. Look at the way you're dressed. Just wearing really daggy old clothes. You know, they're really sort of maybe fashionable about 20 years ago, but not today. And look at your teeth. They're crooked and they're yellow. Your hair, you know, is a mess. And look at your personality. You don't know how to sort of um, have fun and tell a few jokes and encourage people. He said, look, said a counsellor, I can give you some sort of personality counselling but I also want you to go and get your teeth straightened and also to learn a bit about grooming and get yourself some nice clothes. And he said, that's going to cost a lot of money. He said, but look, if you want a nice girl, you've got to do it. So he dipped into his savings. He did a good counselling course for about three months you know, on positive um, psychology, learning how to present himself, to be confident, you know, to be fun and also to learn, you know, to groom himself uh, properly. He had his teeth straightened, it cost a lot of money, and whitened. And when it was all finished, he he bought himself a very expensive suit, a really nice um, haircut. He was going out to one of the clubs first night in his new suit. Great personality, great haircut, everything. And just he was crossing the road to go into the club, he got hit by a truck and killed. After all that effort, he never even got a chance to try out his new personality and teeth. So when he went up to heaven, he was very upset. He saw Kuan Yin, the goddess of mercy. He said, call yourself a goddess of mercy. He didn't even give me one night. Not even one night after all that hard work, getting my good personality, my teeth straight, a good haircut, and all the money I spent on this suit and I couldn't enjoy it. Why did you do that for? Kill me on the first night. And Quiney said, I'm terribly sorry, it was a mistake, we didn't recognise you. <laughs> so even Quiney makes mistakes. <laughs> so we I don't live with mistakes, or so just have fun with them. And because, then we get this terrible thing of worry out of our system. I know when we don't worry about things when we do have more fun, we do have a more positive attitude towards life because we're not worrying about the future. We're actually spending more time working for the future. And as I say, whenever I teach meditation, when is the only time you can do something for your future? Now! This moment now is where your future is made. And every time you go worrying about what might happen next week, next month, next year, you are actually neglecting your future. Every time you go worrying about the future, you're not being active now doing something about it. So how can you be successful in life? One, not worrying. Two, not being afraid. Being more in this moment. It has nothing to do Resting, conserving your energies, just like that soldier. So when there is something to do, when there is a business opportunity, an opportunity to make some money or get a good job or whatever, when it is an opportunity, then you're not so tired out, you're not so sick with worry that you miss the opportunities which come in life again and again and again. People miss those opportunities because they're busy worrying about what might go wrong next week. Instead of taking this moment, At least resting, enjoying, being alert, mindful as they say, and taking the opportunities as they do come. If you're busy worrying about the future, you're not paying attention to the present, where the future is made. So don't worry about what's going to happen next. I put all my worry, all my concern, all my energy, what I'm doing now. It's basic, what we call in Buddhism, the law of karma. Calm is what you're doing now. And I trust this law of karma 100%. If in this moment, right now, I am doing something good, peaceful, wise, compassionate, gentle, generous, if I'm doing something kind, good, generous, wonderful now, I know my future will be successful. It's worked pretty well so far in my life. I've actually been very successful. I just found out last week, some of the talks, or actually all the talks which I give in Australia, they're put on YouTube. And now we're the 20, 26th most visited site in Australia, in YouTube. Of all the YouTube sites, we're number 26. So I must work harder if I do getting get in the top 10. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good for, Buddhists, for a Buddhist site in the, the country. We see that You see know, that's pretty, pretty successful. I just not know, all that 17 languages, that little book of mine. And I got this wonderful um, letter um, about a year ago, no, about, not a year ago, about three months ago. This English lady wrote to me, and she's been seconded to work with the government in Romania, the East European com- country. And they're reforming the penal system. Romania has just been allowed to enter the European Union. And as being part of this huge block of countries, they have to, um, many of their um, government systems and this particular prison surface has to be brought in line with the rest of Europe. So she is one of the people who is working on reforming the penal system in Romania. And she wrote to me saying she's using my book, Open the Door of the Heart, as the philosophy behind her reforms. And I was really so moved by that. A little book there is actually going to affect thousands, the lives of thousands of prisoners in a country in Eastern Europe. I never thought it would go that far. I think that's pretty successful. But of course you never think of that when you're doing it. You just do the very best you can in this moment, being kind, being generous, being gentle, doing good karma in this moment, and if you know you're doing good karma in this moment, you know you're going to be successful next week, next month, next year, whenever your karma ripens. But worrying is bad karma. Worry, 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 worry. You're going to be a pain in the neck for the people you live with. You're going to be a pain in the neck for yourself. You're going to have to go to counseling, which is very expensive with money you can't afford in such difficult times. You're going to be sick as well physically. And you're going to sort of probably have to split with your partner because no one likes someone who worries all the time. So it's bad karma. It's not worrying so much. It's not being so afraid. Being afraid is bad karma as well. Okay, there's something really to be afraid of if that really was a tiger, a monkey eating tiger in the the forest. But it was only a mouse. But fear made it into a tiger. The recession is only a mouse, really. But we make it into a tiger. Somebody's going to gobble us all down and take away all our happiness. Fear is what makes the gloom. Any type of positive energy turns gloom, not into something negative, but something bright, positive. There's always something you can use and make something out of. You can always make good karma. As I said in also that book, the story of the two women baking a cake. It doesn't matter what the ingredients are in your life. If you've got lots of money or little money, you've got great talent or little talent, you're highly intelligent or hardly much intelligence at all, it doesn't matter what you've got to work with. It's what you do with what you've got is the meaning of life. I know some people who are born with silver spoons in their mouth. Not just silver spoons, a whole cutlery set in their mouth, they're so rich. But they waste their whole life. I see many people like that. But in other people are born in such poverty, in such difficult times. And they made a wonderful life. Not even myself. My father was out of work a lot of his life because he was so sick. He had asthma and all sorts of other diseases. And we lived in a council flat. A council flat in England was like subsidised housing. And I told a lot of people... That in those days, even though it was a poor part of London, we were never afraid of burglars. We would actually deliberately leave the door of our house open, the flat open often, hoping a burglar would come in, take pity on us and leave something. <laughs> we were poor. But you know, because I worked hard with what I had, you know, got to great school and then went up to Cambridge and you know, had a really good career even as a monk. So, you know, I learned how to make use of what I had, whatever that was. And certainly I wasn't born with any sort of silver spoon it's plastic all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Now this is actually just an example. There's other people are far, far more um, courageous, inventive than ever I was. So when you look at such people and you look upon what you have to work with, you've got heaps to work with right now. So don't think that so-called recession is going to hold you back. You've got plenty to work with in your life to make a beautiful cake. And do the proper thing, good karma. Have the friends, look after one another. If there is somebody who's having a hard time financially, look after them. There's something you can do for them. That will come back to you later on in life, or next life, when you're having a hard hard time. They will come around looking after you. That's what life is all about. Looking after people in their difficult times. This is why we have a community, why we have a fellowship, why we have family, and it's not just your uh, blood family. Look, I'm not even related to you, I'm an Ang Mo. But still, you know, I'm very happy to help you, you help me. So this is the bigger family, the world family. When we help each other out like that, now that is something very spiritual and wonderful. We make good karma every moment and that's actually how we fight recessions. Taking the opportunities to not have a spiritual recession, to keep it just like a financial recession and keep it a spiritual boom time. And a lot of times that's what happens in financial troubles. The spirituality, I mean not just these... These forced religions, these organised religions, the Hallelujah Brigade, but so sort of the good, spiritual, kindness, generosity, looking after one another—they flourish at this time because people realise that these are really what's important. There are two economies in Singapore. There always was, always has been, the financial economy, and just the spiritual, family, compassion economy. Don't let that go into recession. If that goes into recession, then I will be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but it hasn't, it won't. So keep the smile going. And it's not a gloom. Ah, when I came here this time last year, we were talking about something else. When I, What we were talking about last time, when I was here about a year ago, I don't know what we are talking about, sort of maybe depression in Singapore or whatever, and now it's recession instead of depression. And next year will be something else about how to deal with the boom in Singapore. (laughs) And the year after that, we'll be talking about something else. (laughs) These things always change. The headlines will always be different this time next year. I guarantee that. So, don't be afraid. Have a good time. Something you can do, do it. Nothing you can do, enjoy the moment. You deserve. Have a cup of tea, have some noodles. But please, let go of this worry business. Whatever you think it's going to be, it's not going to be like that at all. And also the fear about making mistakes. You don't make mistakes. You're all trying so hard to do the right thing for yourself, for your family, for your friends. If it doesn't work out, don't think, ah I stuffed up. You haven't stuffed up. You've tightened down your best. We call that actually, I heard this phrase in this um, retreat with the Australian Prime Minister. We call it forward failing. I love that saying, forward failure. So it's not real failure, you forward, you go forward in life. So you actually learn from it, not backwards failure, which is when people just really give up, and they get really worse off after whatever happens. But forward failing. We learn, we grow, we do it better. Every time. So that's all this really recession is. Forward failing. We'll grow stronger, happier, better. And also, at the same time, we'll have a spiritual boom. So thank you for listening. Any questions? <laughs> okay. sadhu. Sadhu, 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 sadhu. 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 So, so I'm not going to do anything now for five minutes while you while you ask the questions. I'll just have a cup of tea.
1: I'd <laughs> now like to open up the floor for questions. So if you just raise your hand. I'll have the microphone pass to you. Yep.
0: Thank you, John uh, Brown, for the great talk. Uh, uh, I'd just like to ask you a que- uh, couple of questions. What do you reckon of the uh, religion that teach you to fear the Creator and also to punish, and also that uh, they are the only way to so-called whatever? That really is crazy. <laughs> First of all, fear is the opposite of love. really we can't have it both ways. We can't have a religion of love and a religion of fear at the same time. Remember what love is, that opening story of either the title to that book, Opening the Door of Your Heart. Again, my father, a poor man, I was never afraid of him, I respected him. I remember one thing he told me. This is many things. He said, son, never steal. If you want something that bad, you're willing to steal from a shop or from somebody else, let me know and I'll buy it for you. He was such a poor man. That really hit me deep inside. He couldn't afford it, but he would find the money somehow to prevent his son from getting into trouble by stealing. He taught me not through fear, but through love. It's far more powerful. Fear also means that know, when the pastor or the boss or your parent aren't around, then you don't have to behave anymore. Because fear only works, you know, when the stick is in front of you. And so that people will behave when they're in the church. We all know what they do when they're outside. <laughs> that's what fear is, because they think they're not going to get caught. Instead of having fear like the love is a positive reason for doing these things. You do these things because of kindness. Why would you want to steal from someone you care about? And we care about everybody. So we don't have fear, we have love in Buddhism, real compassion. And this is not just making this up for modern times. I was really impressed when I read Buddhism and I found you know, in mon- monasteries, there is no punishment. You know, if you do a wrong thing, all you need to do, you, know, you do something wrong, you go up to another monk and say, look, this is what I've did. And he would say, Great, you let me know that. Acknowledge it and try to be better next time. And said, I will. And that's it, finished. No penances, no canings, no sort of being put in a dungeon for ten days. That's all there was. And even when you read what happened to the Buddha, sometimes people came to assassinate the Buddha. And when they came to assassinate the Buddha, the Buddha was just, just too nice, too soft and cuddly to kill. So they just said, I'm sorry, we came to assassinate, but we just can't do it. And the Buddha never sort of said, I'm going to tell the police and get you arrested. He just said, wonderful that you admitted that. Now don't do it again, off you go. And that was amazing. And that's actually also that how we teach things in a monastery. Uh, my monastery, there's a classic story. Uh, in our Buddhist monastery down in Australia, this is like the Thai forest tradition. If anyone wants to become a monk, they have to train for one year first of all keeping eight precepts as you do when you go on retreats. And one of those precepts like a monk you can't eat after midday until the following dawn. And after one year and eight precepts you can go on ten precepts which is a novice precepts and after two four years of training like that you can have the full monk precepts. So once there was this young man and he was training the first year, on eight precepts, he came up to me, because I was the abbot. he said, I want to confess a terrible, terrible crime. So what have you done? He said, I was hungry yesterday afternoon. I went into the kitchen and made myself a sandwich. I so said, I feel so terrible about it. And so what I said to him, this is classic Buddhism. Look, you, you made a mistake, but you admitted it. Well done. Now, how about eating a bit more for lunch? So I tried to help him with strategies, so he doesn't get in that situation where he needs to break the precepts. You know, maybe you can have some honey or sugar in the afternoon, or you know, some of the fruit juices, I'll get you some more so you don't need to to drink uh, to, uh, steal. But then he came out to me, he's an Australian, he said, Ajahn Brahm, that's not good enough. He said, if you just forgive me like that, I know me, he said, I'll do it again. He said, I need to be punished. It was a very tough case. <laughs> so I thought, and as it happened, I was reading this book on Australian history. I was actually reading it that morning. And it was actually, it was a book called The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes. And I was reading about the way they treated convicts in Australia, you know, 150, 200 years ago. They would actually flog them with a cat of nine tails. I'd just been reading that that morning. And so I had an idea. I said, well you want a punishment, and this is Australia, I punish you to 50 strokes of the cat. And this poor man, his face went white. <laughs> you know, Australia's is already pretty white, but much whiter than usual. <laughs> he said, oh my goodness, I'm going to get flogged by Ajahn Brahm. And then I had to tell him what 50 strokes of the cat means in a monastery. We've got three cats in our monastery, try and find one of them and stroke it 50 times. One <laughs> to learn some <laughs> kindness and compassion. <laughs> and so that's what 50 strokes of the cat means. If you're very naughty, you get 100 strokes of the cat. One, <laughs> <Two>. <laughs> They need to learn how to forgive themselves. So there's fear and punishment. That's where that one comes from. And when it's the only way, that's like, you know, people like to have a franchise. You know, saying like, no, McDonald's hamburger is the only hamburger. Burger King and no good. We never say that in business. In fact, if we had the same rules as business, those churches would get sued. Prove it's the only way. No one has the franchise on truth. The only job of any teacher, any um, uh, monastery, temple or church is not is actually to tell people how to find out for themselves. Experience, questioning, investigation. So you find out what is the way and actually the only way to find out truth you just said it. Questioning, investigating, experience. That is the only way to find out the truth. There's all science, any common sense people want to know. It's cause of fear. Fear says, well, if you don't do this, you'll go to hell. But as many people who remember their past lives, you don't go to hell if you don't go to church. Actually, quite the opposite. A lot of people go to church go down hell. <laughs> it's not where you go or what religion you say you are. It's what you do, how you act. That's what's most important. If you're kind, if you're generous, if you're virtuous, then you're a good person. I don't care what religion you call yourself. Okay, yes. next question. One over here is very close. Um,
1: thank you for the talk, Kajam It was really lovely. Um, the first question I have is that uh, when Lord Buddha actually... Um, It took him some time to ordain the first Buddhist nun. Aha,
0: yes.
1: Why did it take such a time? And the second question, it might seem like a joke, so it might actually be material for your subsequent talks. Uh, Was there ever a female Buddha?
0: Aha, I answered both questions last night in my talk in Perth. It's interesting. You must have read my mind and know it's fresh (laughs) in here. (laughs) (laughs) She's sitting very close. There must be lots of... (laughs) <laughs> connections coming here. We don't know exactly how long it was because the uh, the time uh, the time scale of when these things happened, they weren't really recorded all that much. So it was pretty early on. But you, the Buddha obviously uh, started ordaining monks first of all. It was easier to do. And then later on, started ordaining uh, women as bhikkhunis. We don't know exactly how long it was. But Uh, One thing which was, many people point this out, the Buddha actually is supposed to have said right after his enlightenment uh, to this fellow Mara, because Mara said, okay, you're enlightened now, don't go around teaching people, you know, you can just uh, have a nice quiet time. Because this guy Mara, like a a devil, but not an evil person, just a stupid person. We don't believe in evil in Buddhism, we believe believe in stupidity. (laughs) And so, he's a stupid person, he didn't want, the Buddha to create more enlightened people. They wanted to teach the Dhamma. Because he was known as sort of a stupid person. So he said, look, you know, you've been enlightened now. I'll accept that. You just have an easy time. Don't go teaching people. And the Buddha said, no. He said, I have to teach and I'm not going to die until I've established what they call the four assemblies. The monks, the nuns, the laymen, the laywomen disciples. When I've established those four assemblies, then I can leave this world and enter Parinibbana. And just before the Buddha died, he said the job has been done now. I've established the monks, the nuns, laymen, laywomen, they're established now, so I can leave. The point was, he said at the very beginning, right after he became enlightened. So it was his intention all along, according to that story, to actually obtain to attain the bhikkhunis. Just as even now, In Australia, it's my intention to ordain bhikkhunis. But sometimes it's just hard to do, you need the women who want to be nuns, who want to go through the training and the support for them, the facilities for them. So, the will is there, but there's other obstacles to be overcome. And as far as a, a woman being a Buddha, Uh, that's what I said last night is a talk on investigation you've got a question Okay, so what does it actually say in in the text there's one line there where it says the Buddha is a man now we know that probably was said by the Buddha but what did he actually mean by that was that a statement which just was relevant to India 2500 years ago and to me I would say yes that was a culturally and temporally based statement which doesn't sort of apply to all times and all cultures because look, if a Buddha was going to be reborn today in a world, would he be born as a man or a woman? Caucasian? Asian? Indian? What would he choose? He'd choose whatever vehicle he could best present and teach those wonderful Dhamma. Whether it's a man or woman, Caucasian, Asian, African or South American, wouldn't be a concern for him. As long as it would work the best. Just like if you choose a car, it's just what is the best car for your purposes. And if there was a matriarchal society, then the Buddha would be reborn as a woman. If we had a society where the gays were in power, the Buddha would be reborn as a gay. Okay? So I'm actually taking the question further. Can the Buddha be gay? (laughs) (laughs) Not many marks go that far. Any other questions? Uh, That's very good, that's another point which I did mention last night but I have mentioned now. When it gets to what a Buddha really is, a Buddha is an enlightened mind. If you like to talk about the five senses or the five khandas, the five khandas, the body, this body is male or female. This body is Caucasian, Asian, African or whatever. But this mind, you know when you go into deep meditation, this mind is exactly the same. So it's like you know, some of these uh, Japanese engines go in different makes of car, but it's the same engine inside. This is like the mind. Your mind is exactly the same. Same make, the same model. It works the same way. But you're encased in a woman's body. You're encased in you know, your age, uh, where you come from, your racial tendencies as well. That's just on the outside. That's the surface. And obviously the Buddha is much deeper than that. That's why a Buddha is actually actually correct. A Buddha is not male, not female, because a Buddha is not the body. The Buddha is the mind. And that's why we can all become enlightened. Don't have whatever race, whatever gender, whatever sexual orientation. Gay is just body things. The inside, the mind, is exactly the same. And that's why anybody can become enlightened. And that's where the equality lies. Yes, she did become enlightened as Pajavati, his uh, ex-wife became enlightened as well. So even though he left her, it had a happy ending.
1: (laughs) Uh, Hi Ajahn Brahm, I want to ask a question. Um, How does one actually know when he's being too hard on himself? Or his being
0: too soft. Where's the line within complacency and being trying? I mean, trying to do your best in okay. something. Rule of thumb is you're always far too hard on yourself. Rule of thumb, always be a bit easier on yourself, because most people in our modern society, the way we've been brought up and conditioned at school, at home, university, and at work, are far too tough on ourselves. So. You know, almost without knowing what you, who you are, what you're talking about, I can always say you should be far easier on yourself. <laughs> and you know that it works because your mental health, your physical health improves and so does your success in life. It's very easy to actually to test, you actually feel much better. Life goes more smoothly and you are actually more successful. So, so we're so afraid of letting go and relaxing because we think everything will go wrong. A good example of this is when I was a kid, when I got my first bicycle. I rode that bicycle I was so afraid of falling off. I would grab the handlebars until my knuckles went white. I was so stiff that I kept on falling off. Because I was afraid of falling off, I became rigid, unbalanced and fell off often. When I learned how to relax on that bicycle, I never fell off like life, it's like that bicycle. If you relax, you just go around the corners of life, around this recession, around that boom, you know this sort of nice romance, you know that dumping. You can actually learn how to sort of balance on the bicycle of life. You don't grip life so hard. You become so rigid you keep falling off and hurting yourself. Relax more. And Life goes far more smoothly.
1: Are there any more questions? We'll have to take, take one more. Yeah, just hang on so everybody can hear it.
0: All right. Um, my question is: Is Buddhism a of study, or is it a religion? And uh, the follow follow on question would be: Does Buddhism has answers to all questions? Okay, it uh, has an answer to that question. <laughs> I say this often in Australia, and they ask you, is Buddhism a, a field of study, philosophy or religion? And I say, especially in Australia, Buddhism is a religion for tax purposes. <laughs> 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 you get a lot of advantages <laughs> if you're a religion. But the best answer for that, about 25 years, or maybe 30 years ago, there was actually a debate in the House of Lords in London, about whether Buddhism is a religion or not. And it was a very, very high powered um, debate which actually redefined the meaning of religion. Because they uh, knew that Buddhism had a transcendent part to it. The deep experiences of meditation, dharma, they didn't have like a god. But they still had people coming together in temples, churches, uh, doing good works, doing good things, having rituals such as the chanting and everything else, it had everything to do with a religion except for a god. And they realised that you don't need to have a god to have a religion. And so that they decided, yes, Buddhism certainly is a religion. But it's not a reli- it's actually changed the meaning of that word. Which is a wonderful thing to do, because words do change their meanings over, over time. So Buddhism is redefining a religion. and Even Buddhism is changing. Now the Buddhism of Singapore twenty thirty years ago is not the same as it is today. It's certainly not what you're doing here. So you can actually see it is changing. But it is a way of life, as it should be. It is a philosophy. It is a way of reasoning. It's a refuge in times of crisis. It doesn't answer every question, of course not. Uh, but honesty means that you say, well, I just don't know. There are some things which you don't know exactly when. Sort of the crisis, the economic problems are going to. Uh, bottom out and turn up. I know they're going to turn up. They have to turn up. That's just the nature of life. But you don't know exactly when. So there's some questions you don't know. And it's great to be honest enough to say, well, I don't know those answers. There's a lot of answers which it does know. And that's why I was just giving a talk at this uh, a rotary group. And Buddhism is getting so popular in the West that this uh, fellow asked a question. He said he was a chaplain at an Anglican school and just, uh, I don't know why he asked this question, he asked all his kids if you weren't Christians, what would you be? And they'll put their hand up, Buddhist sir, Buddhist. <laughs> so it's got a very, very good reputation in the Western world. Lloyd Gearing, do yeah. you want to say that? I'm going to do
1: a Google on Professor Lloyd Gearing, who was uh, one of the speakers at the last global conference in Buddhism in Auckland. And he actually gave a presentation on uh, the evolution of God, that even the concept of God has changed over time. Another piece of information that might be uh, interesting is that there is a a video uh, on YouTube that is a documentary by BBC called Is Jesus a Buddhist? Because during his lost years, that's not documented in the Bible from 13 to 30. Um, he could very well have been in India, studying under uh, Tibetan monks.
0: Yes, sir. It's bad. Okay, Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, anyway, that at least we can now all celebrate Christmas Day, because <laughs> <laughs> it's celebrating the birth of a Buddhist monk. But
1: well, you can't ban books nowadays. You can buy them from Amazon.com, so not much point. Okay, I think with that, uh, we'll close the session. It is probably getting quite warm for everyone. And also, we have to get Ajahn Brahm uh, back to the airport to catch his flight. Uh, He is on the 5 o'clock flight to Kuala Lumpur. So, (laughs) 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 actually, neither are we. (laughs) Yeah, the people in Malaysia will be worried, because there's a talk by you tonight, I believe. Okay, um, just to let you know or remind you that there is going to be a meditation um, talk on blissing out meditation on the 21st of January. And that's when Ajahn Brahm is coming through again for a few hours.